morning, Jericho Ridge, and welcome to our online time together. As you can see, this Sunday we are giving our worship teams and some of their support teams the morning off so that they can be at home with their families. And while we aren't offering worship singing in our live stream this morning, we will have a family news piece available to you after the end of the live stream. We have an update, a video update from Anita McCarthy that we'll make available to you via a link. And also, we want to encourage you during the week, as you sit with the message that we're uh, going to be taking part in this morning, to access online worship songs uh, and videos to supplement uh, that part of the experience this morning. And so, as I would, if we were gathering in person at the Jericho Center together for worship, I want to invite you to top up your beverage. And I want you to begin to quiet the noise that's around you, whatever that may be, and let's begin to focus our attention on what God has for us this morning. One of the most profound ways that we can be together and unified in spirit while practicing social distancing is through prayer. And so church, I invite you to call on the presence, the omnipresent Holy Spirit with me this morning to do that for us. So let's pray together. Holy Spirit, you are with all of us in our individual spaces. And you have the desire and the capacity to unify us and bring us together as your people. And so as we spend time in your word together, we trust that this is a message you have for each of us, but for all of us as the church. And we ask that you would open up the scriptures to us, and we ask that you would speak the same things to us, even though we are spread across our community. We entrust our time to you. We entrust our spirits to you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. This Lent, our focus is on Mark's expose of Jesus in his gospel. And so I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 12 as we continue to ask the question, who is Jesus? Now before we read our passage, let's remind ourselves of where we are at in Mark. What's the context for Mark 12 and the passage that we're going to look at this morning? The previous chapter, Mark 11, signals Jesus' final week on earth as he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. We call this the triumphal entry, and normally we use this passage on Palm Sunday as it begins the shift to the final week of Jesus' earthly ministry, pointing towards Good Friday, his death, and Easter morning, his resurrection. So Pastor Brad will revisit Mark 11 in a couple weeks on Palm Sunday with more detail. But now, without trying to preempt him and steal his thunder, we still need to have a sense of what happened in Mark 11 so that we begin to understand better what's happening in Mark 12. So some context from Mark 11. As I said, Jesus in Mark 11 is entering into Jerusalem in what we call the triumphal entry. He has crowds around him shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
The Israelites are celebrating the coming king. They're laying out palm branches, which is a, sig a symbol, a, a signal that the king is coming. That victory, that triumph, and peace for their nation is on the verge of happening. That Jesus, the king, will usher in for them the kingdom that they have been waiting generations for. A couple days after the triumphal entry in Mark 11, we find Jesus heading to the temple and we find him chasing out the money changers who are doing business in God's house. And we hear Jesus saying things like, this is a house of prayer for all nations. I want you to remember that phrase. It's a key phrase for us in Mark 12. This is a house of prayer for all nations and you've turned it into a den of thieves. And we see the reaction of the religious leaders as Jesus completely disrupts their system and their practices. And immediately the Jewish leaders start to plot how to get rid of and how to kill Jesus, which is an incredible juxtaposition of the triumphal entry that we just read about in the beginning of Mark 11. And then finally at the end of Mark 11, the leaders simply confront Jesus and they ask, Who are you? Who gave you the authority to come here and to turn what we've been doing and worked so hard at all upside down? Who do you think you are, Jesus? Friends, that's the question that weaves its way throughout the Gospel of Mark. And that's the question that we need to ask today. Who does Jesus think he is? And who do we, who do I in my spirit think and say Jesus is. It's the overarching focus of Mark 12, starting in verses 1 through to 12, which is the passage we're about to read, where, where Jesus uses the story of a vineyard to begin to answer the question of who he is. So read along with me in your Bibles, on your devices, in Mark chapter 12, starting verse 1. Then Jesus began teaching them with stories. A man planted a vineyard, he built a wall around it, dug a pit for pressing out the grape juice, and built a lookout tower. Then he leased the vineyard to tenant farmers and moved to another country. At the same time of the grape harvest, he sent one of his servants to collect his share of the crop. But the farmers grabbed the servant, beat him up, and sent him back empty-handed to the owner. The owner then sent another servant, but they insulted that servant and beat him over the head. The next servant he sent was killed. Others he sent were either beaten or killed until there was only one person left, his son, whom he loved dearly. The owner finally sent him thinking, surely they will respect my son. But the tenant farmers said to one another, here comes the heir to the estate. Let's kill him and get the estate for ourselves. So they grabbed him, murdered him, threw his body out of the vineyard. Jesus asks, what do you suppose the owner of the vineyard will do? I'll tell you, Jesus says, he's going to come and kill those farmers and he's going to lease the vineyard to others. Didn't you ever read this in the scriptures? 
And he's quoting from Psalm 118 here. The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it's wonderful to see. The religious leaders wanted to arrest Jesus because they realized he was telling the story against them. They were the wicked farmers, but they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and they went away. The story describes a familiar scene for the Jews. Jesus is recalling the prophet Isaiah's writing in the book of Isaiah, chapter 5, verses 1 to 7. The man who plants the vineyard represents God. The vineyard represents Israel, the people of God. The tenants, the wicked tenants, are the religious leaders of Israel. The servants are the faithful Old Testament prophets. And then the beloved son is Jesus. So a man has a vineyard and he rents it to a bunch of tenants. The tenants misappropriate his property. And when the owner sends his messengers to collect what is rightfully his, the tenants beat them, insult them, and even kill some. Eventually the owner sends his only beloved son that's left, and they kill him as well. You can imagine the landowner is angry. He's furious. He's going to remove. He's actually saying he's going to kill the tenants. And he's going to lease. He's going to go into relationship with some new, some other tenants. And on hearing the story, the religious leaders didn't even need an explanation. We think of the many times that Jesus tells stories in other places in the Gospels, or he tells parables, and then the people are like, what did you mean about that? In this case, the religious leaders know exactly what Jesus is talking about and what he's trying to communicate. Look again at verse 12. The religious leaders wanted to arrest Jesus because they realized he was telling the story against them. They were the wicked farmers. They're the tenants, and God is less than impressed, less than satisfied with what's going on under their leadership. They're entrusted with cultivating something. They're given a mission to create something that is meant for a future kingdom, for a future harvest. And Jesus calls them out on their blatant failure around what God's entrusted to them and for the purposes that God entrusted it to them. And he uses two metaphors to indicate, to symbolize the failure and to answer their defiant question from the end of Mark 11, who are you, Jesus? Who gave you this authority? Metaphor one. The first metaphor is that of a vineyard. Israel is entrusted to the Jewish leaders. Israel is God's vineyard planted in the world to be a blessing. As I mentioned earlier, the reference is to Isaiah chapter 5. But it actually goes back even further to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, where God promises to Abraham that you and your family will be a blessing to all the families of the earth. Israel is God's vineyard, and they were always blessed to be a blessing to all people, to all nations. Remember in Mark 11, Jesus' uh, reference when he's 
chasing out the money changers and he says the temple is supposed to be a house of prayer for not just the Jews, not just the Israelite nation, but for all the nations. Because Israel as a nation, as a vineyard, is supposed to be an attractant. It's supposed to be bringing all the nations in. They're intended to be a reflection of God and act as that attractant for all the other nations to come to God. And that's what the religious leaders all this time were supposed to be cultivating. This nation that would be a blessing of God for the rest of the nations. That's the explicit purpose of the vineyard. And it's not a new message. This isn't a revelation to the Jewish leaders. They've heard God talk about this through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 5. Let's read that scripture together. Now I will sing for the one I love, a song about his vineyard. My beloved has a vineyard on a rich and fertile hill. He plowed the land, cleared its stones, and planted it with the best vines. In the middle he built a watchtower, carved a wine press in the nearby rocks. Then he waited for a harvest of sweet grapes. But the grapes that grew were bitter. Now you people of Jerusalem and Judah, you judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard that I have not already done? When I expected sweet grapes, why did my vineyard give me bitter grapes? Now let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will tear down its hedges and I will let it be destroyed. I will break down its walls and let the animals trample it. I will make it a wild place where the vines are not pruned and the ground is not hoed, a place overgrown with briars and thorns. I will command the clouds to drop no rain on it. The nation of Israel is the vineyard of the Lord of heaven's armies. The people of Judah, remember at the time Isaiah is writing, there's a divided kingdom. The people of Judah are his pleasant garden. He expected a crop of justice, but instead he found oppression. He expected to find righteousness, but instead he heard cries of violence. The Jewish leaders knew this passage from Isaiah. And Jesus is simply refreshing the imagery of Isaiah for the leaders. He's accusing them of repeating history. They've completely forgotten God's purpose for them as a nation. They're oppressing the marginalized. There are cries of, of violence as they go into this self-centered shield and protect us against the world mode. This isn't the kind of vineyard that God can use to attract all the other people, all the other nations to himself. And so finally God has no other choice but to send his own beloved son Jesus to confront and to reclaim what is rightfully his. And Jesus has arrived. And when Jesus arrives and tells this story, the leaders seamlessly assume their role that, from the story in real life by immediately planning how to get rid of Jesus, the beloved son, plotting to kill him. Which leads us to the second metaphor. 
In Mark 12, 10, Jesus asked the leaders, didn't you ever read the scriptures? He's quoting from Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23. The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it's wonderful to see. Jesus shifts from the vineyard imagery to the building metaphor. So what's a cornerstone? The cornerstone concept comes from the first stone set in the construction of a masonry foundation. Its importance is crucial because all the other stones are set based on this one. It governs the grade and the integrity of the entire rest of the foundation and anything that's built on that foundation. And Jesus says that he's the rejected cornerstone in God's construction of the nation, of the people, his people. Jesus is telling the Jewish leaders that they have oriented their foundation and its structures on the wrong cornerstone. And again, this isn't a new image for the Jewish religious leaders. Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament, Psalm 118, which they would have been familiar with. Verse 8, it's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in people. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes or kings. Open for me, verse 19, the gates where the righteous enter, and I will go in and I will thank the Lord. These gates lead to the presence of the Lord and the godly enter there. I thank you for answering my prayer and giving me victory. The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it's wonderful to see. This is the day that the Lord has made, and we will rejoice and be glad in it. The temple has become the heart of the nation of Israel. It's one of the reasons why in the Old Testament when, God, when the people asked for a temple to be built, God originally said no. In Mark 11, Jesus said when the temple was finally allowed to be built that it was intended to be a house of prayer for all the nations. But in Mark 12, we already know that the leaders are running God's, vine, God's vineyard amok. The nation is not functioning as it was intended to. The vineyard is not producing sweet grapes. It's producing bitter grapes. And the temple stands as a symbolic monstrosity of what is wrong. Of what is causing God's vineyard, God's nation, his people to fail. The temple was built on the wrong cornerstone. And consequently, its integrity is lacking to such an extent that it needs to be destroyed. Perhaps this visual will help us grasp what's happening within the nation of Israel. The misconstruction of Israel's religious and political system is astounding when we put into physical images that reveal and compare its evolution over the generations from the Old Testament. So let's start with a modern-day familiar facility that many North Americans worship at on a Sunday morning, the football field. Shout out to our resident Patriots fan. That's Gillette Stadium, where the New England Patriots 
normally play out of Foxborough, Massachusetts. It has a seating capacity of almost 66,000 people. During the time of Moses in the Old Testament, the Israelites built a tabernacle. It was the earthly vessel intended to hold the presence of God. And you can see on the image that it's actually just a tent and it's really not all that big. It could be packed up and moved wherever God desired it to go. You could use words like humble, simple, versatile, nimble to describe it. Where God needed it, it could be packed up and it could go. A few hundred years later, the Israelites want an earthly king. Eventually, David is that king. And David wants to build a permanent structure in place of the tabernacle. David is told, no, you don't get to do it. But his son, King Solomon, does build the temple, which you can see is roughly the same size, a little bit bigger, but roughly the same footprint as the tabernacle was. The difference now is the extravagant decor and that it's situated in one place. It cannot move around. And at that time, God was warning the nation of Israel that he didn't want a temple. But he does allow it with the provision that if the nation veers from his purposes, that God was going to abandon the temple and that he would allow it to be destroyed. Which is what Isaiah the prophet was warning about in the passage we are reading in Isaiah chapter 5. And in fact, in 586 BC, the Babylonians fulfill that prophecy and they come and they destroy the temple. So the temple lays in ruins and we fast forward about 500 years during the time of Jesus on earth. And now we have King Herod in Jerusalem and he spent 40 years building a new temple for the Jews. You can see the image coming up. And words like humble and versatile and nimble are not words that you can use to describe Herod's temple. The sheer size compared to one of our modern day football stadium is astounding. Think about what this structure says about the cultivating that was taking place in the vineyard in God's people. On what cornerstone is this temple and this, the, the, the structures and the systems that were flowing out of it built on? And for what purposes? Herod wanted to become powerful enough to defeat the Roman Empire. The Israelites wanted a Messiah who would come, a religious king who would accomplish the very same goal. But Jesus didn't fit that bill, so they get rid of him. Now eventually Israel does go to war with Rome, and in AD 70, Rome comes and finally wipes out that temple, that massive temple for the last time. And God didn't prevent that from happening because he'd already begun a new kingdom founded on a new cornerstone. Jericho, we are part of the new kingdom that is built on the new cornerstone, Jesus Christ. 
We as God's people today are the vineyard. And we remain entrusted with God's goal of blessing all families, all nations, just as he originally decreed and promised through Abraham, and attracting all the nations to God. And Jesus remains the cornerstone of this kingdom and of the mission. Jesus answers in Mark chapter 12 the Jewish leader's question of who he is with a resounding, I am the beloved son. And I am the cornerstone. This is God the Father's doing. And it's a wonderful thing to see. Jericho Bridge, we exist and we strive to be a faith community that proclaims those very words. Our mission is to ensure that we, as the vineyard, are a blessing to all the families on the earth. That's what God has entrusted to his people from generation to generation to generation to our generation. And nothing short will satisfy God. And there's no other cornerstone that we can build on than Jesus Christ. Nothing else will stand and prevail in God's kingdom as history showed itself. Friends, the days in which Jesus confronted the religious leaders were shrouded with oppressive forces that created an atmosphere of uncertainty and dis-ease in God's people. Things were not as they ought to be. The people, the world, longed for something different. They longed, they needed and wanted someone to save them. Does that sound familiar? I wonder if today COVID-19 is causing your identity, your world to shake to the point of questioning who are we as God's people? And who is Jesus as the cornerstone of this kingdom? Friends, God is not shaken. He is still entrusting his mission for the world to us, his church. We are still called as God's people to cultivate the vineyard so that it produces godly, sweet fruit that attracts all those around us. We are still, as Abraham was told, a blessing to be a blessing to all the nations so that every person can come into relationship with God. Our charge has not changed from Abraham to Solomon to Isaiah to the religious leaders that Jesus confronted in Mark 12. And our confident hope must continue to be singular in origin. We stand on the cornerstone who is Jesus Christ. Psalm 118, hear the words again. The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and it's wonderful to see. This is the day the Lord has made, including today, and we will rejoice and be glad in it. Friends, especially in our days today, in these times, all the nations of the world, all the families in our neighborhoods are taste testing from 
God's vineyard. And they are faith-testing the cornerstone of God's foundation. What an opportunity we have today in this time to be a blessing to all those around us. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and we will be glad in it because the cornerstone, Jesus Christ, remains in place, unshaken by what is going on in our world. It's an incredible opportunity that we have. Join me in praying into this opportunity for us as the church today. Lord Jesus, we honor and recognize you as the cornerstone. We declare that in our midst you are no longer rejected. We declare as a church, as Jericho Ridge, as your people, that we aim and strive and want to build on you and on you alone. And that we want the church, the vineyard, to produce in and through us the kind of sweet, sweet fruit that would be a blessing to all the families of the world. In these days that we live, Lord Jesus, we have full confidence that you are doing this and that you can do it. And so we say, would you continue to entrust and use us as your church, and would you empower us to be able to accomplish your mission? We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Friends, I send you into this week with whatever it may hold for each of us and for all of us, with the words of Romans chapter 15. I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. Friends, I am fully convinced, dear brothers and sisters of Jericho Ridge, that you are full of goodness and that you know these things so well that you can go out and teach others all about them. Friends, go with God's confident hope into this week and be a blessing to all that you meet. Amen. Oh, and one last thing, friends. There's no need to stack chairs this morning. Thanks, and join us again next week at our on our live stream at 1030.